Would you join me in prayer again for a moment? Father, your servant, the psalmist, said, I will run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And that's what we want to do today. We want to understand the path of your commands because we believe that as we run in them, as we love you and obey you, that we will walk in freedom. So free us today in your love, in your obedience, and in your service. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the second weekend of REACH, our spotlight on global missions. If you were here last week, Pastor Sandy Wilson asked a question that I want us to think about more today. He said, is your life your best answer to the Great Commission? What did he mean by that? Well, what is the Great Commission? Very simply, it was Jesus' command to his followers, which includes us today, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, and also to make disciples of all nations. That's God's command. And it stood for 2,000 years. Now the question is, where are we actually at relative to that command? And there's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is that in the last 100 years, there has been tremendous progress in spreading the gospel of Christ around the world. In 1900, two-thirds of the world lived among people groups who could not hear about Jesus Christ because there were no Christians among them. That number has been reduced in half. And today, only one-third of the world lives in a people group with a church not strong enough to tell them the gospel of Christ. It's been amazing what God has done in the 20th century. The church in Latin America has grown, for instance, from 1% evangelical to 17% in 100 years. And in Africa, from 1% to 19%. God has been on the move, and it's been primarily initially through the sending of Western missionaries into these parts of the world and the preaching of the gospel. But increasingly towards the last part of the 20th century, missionaries being sent out from the global south all around the world. People who wear clothes more like mine than like yours. And together, God is doing a great job of proclaiming Christ to the nations through his people. But the bad news is this, that there is still one third of the world today, 2.5 billion people who, even if they wanted to, could not today hear about Jesus Christ because there is not a church. There are not resources in their language and culture for them to hear. And so that's the gap that Sandy Wilson was talking about. The commission is over here. God wants us to do this. Here's where we're at today. And his question was simply this. What is your life doing to fill the gap? Are you doing anything to make a difference for the 2.5 billion people that live in darkness? And as I thought about the question of why after 2,000 years, with all of the resources and the technology and the people we have, why is it that still fully one-third of the world is past the reach of the gospel? I've come to this conclusion. It's either that we don't understand the job or we don't have the heart for it. Now, I believe that those of you who are following Jesus, and if you're not, by the way, following Jesus, we're glad you're here with us exploring because we're learning together what it means to follow Jesus. But I think you might be a little bit like your kids. Have you ever had an experience like this that on Saturday morning you tell your son or your daughter that you want them to mow the lawn? And they say, Sure, Dad, I'll mow the lawn. And what happens? 
they start watching cartoons or playing video games and the day drags on and by the end of the day what's happened does this ever happen in your family the lawn is not mowed and i wonder if perhaps that's what's happened to us today we have gotten off track we have missed the mission we're not doing what god wants us to do because we've gotten too busy watching cartoons now i want to help you today i want to help us today from a story from the old testament the story that was read to us of caleb and this is really in my mind a powerful illustration of the new testament command so that's what we're looking at how can we actually fulfill what jesus told us to do in matthew 28 and at the end of Luke and the end of Mark and the end of John and at the beginning of Acts. Jesus repeated the Great Commission numerous times after his death and res resurrection. But the question is, how can we complete that job in the world that we live in today? Because this is a story of an assignment that God gave his people and which they were lackluster in completing. God, you remember, had promised a land to Abraham. And that promise got detoured for about 400 years as his people went to Egypt for food and stayed there for 400 years. But God had not forgotten his promise. God brought them out of Egypt, the story that we're studying in our study in Exodus. And he brought them a few months later to the edge of the promised land. And there at the edge of the promised land, here is what he told his people to do. He said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. They were to explore what he was giving to them. And you remember how the story played out. The spies came back and they said, wow, that is a fantastic land. We would love to live there. Only the price is a little bit too high. The cost is too great. We cannot attack it, they said. Now, there was a minority report, and it's mentioned in our text today of Joshua 14. Joshua and Caleb came back, and it says in Numbers 13.30, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But they were outvoted 10 to 2. Why? Well, I think for two reasons. I think one is that the people of Israel were more interested in the pleasures of Egypt than they were in the purposes of God. Just two chapters before that in Numbers, the people were saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt. Forget that we were slaves there. At least we had pots full of meat and we had all the fish we wanted and we had leeks and garlics and cucumbers and melons. Their minds were focused on the pleasures of this world, not the purposes of God. But the second reason I think they didn't go in is because they were more concerned about their safety than they were about the plans of God. There were some bad dudes in that land and it was going to cost them to conquer that land. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll just stay in our nice little safe cocoon the rest of our lives. And God, you remember, got angry with them. And he said, you're going to wander for 40 years now in the wilderness until every single one of you men is dead and buried in the sand. And that's exactly what happened. So 40 years later, a new generation is now on the border of the promised land. And once again, God speaks to them. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of it. I have given, take possession. And that's what they do. They cross the Jordan River. God gives them great victories. You remember like... 
the victory at Jericho, when this huge walled city, the wall just collapses at the word of God and the people run in and take over. And for seven years, they spread all across the promised land, conquering and defeating peoples, doing what God had told them to do. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. But seven years in, we read this in Joshua 13, verse 1. God says to Joshua, you are very old. God knows our limitations. But then he said, there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. See, seven years in, the job was not done. In fact, the toughest pockets of the inhabitants of Canaan were still left. The people had picked the low-hanging fruit. They had gone where it was easy. And the challenging areas were still filled with the original inhabitants of that land. The people began to be distracted. They began to settle in. And they got too busy watching cartoons to fulfill the plans of God. Well, in our text today, we come to the story of a man who wanted to do something about that. And from Caleb, we're going to learn in this text three lessons on warfare. To accomplish the purposes of God, first of all, we need a heart for the battle. Verses 6 to 12. Now, maybe you're confused at this point and you're saying, what kind of battle are you talking about? Well, our battle today is completely different than Caleb's. I want you to understand that. And yet it is warfare nonetheless. Now, for those of you that may struggle with the ethical question of war in the Old Testament, let me simply say this. God sent his people into that land, not simply to steal those people's land for his people, but he sent them to execute his judgment upon people who for generations had been involved in wickedness and idolatry. Our mission is completely different from that, but it is warfare nonetheless. Caleb's battle was to execute judgment. Ours is to announce salvation. Caleb was told to destroy the Anakites. We are told to deliver the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. We are not driving nations out of their lands. We are driving them to Jesus where they can find life and salvation. We are not killing people. We're giving them life. And so if Caleb's job was important, how much more important is ours? And that's why I say, first of all, we need a heart for the battle like Caleb had. Now, to understand his heart for the battle, we need to look first at verse 15 of chapter 14 of Joshua. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim or the Anakites. Now, does that name ring a bell to you at all? These were the exact same people that the spies 40 years earlier had seen and been afraid of. And in Numbers 13, here's how the people describe them. It says they were very large people and they were powerful. In fact, the spies said, we, we looked in our own eyes. We felt like we were just grasshoppers to them. And we surely must have looked like grasshoppers in their eyes. What do you do with a grasshopper? I mean, they must have felt like me in a room full of NFL players. It would be like, wow, we're a completely different species. You know, I have no chance here. And that's exactly what they said in Numbers 13. We cannot attack them. They're going to cream us. Now, this is the area that Caleb is talking about. 
Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. These were the giants. And 45 years later, nothing had changed. The Anakites hadn't shrunk. In fact, their cities, according to verse 12, were large and fortified. And Hebron was the greatest of all of them. Hebron was a walled city that sat perched on the edge of a, of a mountain chain about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was at about 3,000 feet elevation. And it was a city that for hundreds of years had been deemed impregnable by all the other nations. And into this situation walks a man who is 85 years young. A man who had been wandering in the desert for 40 years because of the disobedience of other people. A man who had already been fighting for seven years in the land. And he walks up to Joshua and he points up to the mountain of Hebron and the wall city there. And he says, give me this mountain. Caleb had a heart for the battle. He picked the most dangerous people in the most difficult location at the age of 85. I often hear people ask me, is missions safe? Well, of course it's not safe. Do you hear Caleb asking that kind of question? My friends, that's a human question. That's a question from an earthly perspective. That's what your unsaved friends and neighbors should ask you when they hear about you going on a vision trip. But you should have a divine perspective. Your question should be, is this something God wants to be done? And if it is, then you need to move ahead with a heart for the battle. And you have to wonder, where did Caleb get such a heart for the battle? Well, it's right here in the text. Did you miss it? Three times in this text, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 14, it says that Caleb followed God with his whole heart. Caleb wholeheartedly followed God. And that was why he had a heart for the battle. How does that work? Well, if you just give God a part of your life, you're not going to have much energy left for the things that are on God's heart. Because you're going to be so busy taking care of the things that concern you, that you are interested in, that you think bring you pleasure. And that's frankly why many of us are ineffective. Because we are not wholehearted. We have divided hearts. We want God and we want these things. Caleb was not that kind of a man. He was a man who lived only for the purposes of God. He knew his God and he loved his God And the things that were on God's heart were on His. And the things that broke God's heart broke His heart. God's agenda was His because He followed God wholeheartedly. And my friends, this is the only way that we can get a heart for the battle. Let me give you a piece of free marriage advice. You see, we all have our own agendas as individuals, don't we? When I was dating Marty, I was a a rabid NBA fan and the Boston Celtics were my team and I would go over to her apartment Sunday after church and I would say let me just check the score and of course you've heard that line from your boyfriend or husband haven't you what happened is then three hours later I finally was ready to pay attention to Marty when the game was over so we entered marriage with this kind of clash developing and it's continued to be a struggle and I hear a laugh that someone else is identifying with this but you know what amazed me about two years into our marriage Marty, out of the blue, began to ask me about Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. And this is going to date me for those of you that follow the NBA. But what had happened? Marty didn't care beans about basketball. 
but she cared about me. So what did she do? She began to enter my world. And because I cared about it, suddenly she cared about it. And that's what it's like with God. When we draw near to Him, when we follow Him with all of our heart, then the things that He cares about will suddenly be things that we care about. And that's why Caleb had such a heart for the battle because it was on God's heart. Caleb was a man's man and this was a man's job. And he stepped up to the plate when men 20 years younger than him refused to do it. But that wasn't all that was going on. This was not just a macho response of an, of an old timer like Arnold who's coming back to do another Conan movie. No, something deeper was going on that Caleb understood that his God wanted this job done and wanted him to do it. Why did Paul make it his life's ambition, as we read in the text from Romans 15, to preach Christ where he had not been known? I think it was because Paul made it his life's ambition to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. And as Paul drew near to Christ, he was flung out from there to the nations because that's what Christ wants to do. That's who our Jesus is. He is the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99, even though they may need a little tending and care. He leaves the 99 to go and find the one who was lost because that's where his heart is. And as our heart gets near to Jesus' heart, we're going to find that we have a heart for the battle as well. Jesus said, I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And that's what took him to the cross. So I have to ask, do you have a heart for the battle? Or are we too busy watching cartoons? Because frankly, we just don't care enough. Well, what's the answer? The answer is simple. It's we need to get closer to God. You don't need to drum this up in yourself. You just need to get closer to God, to follow Him wholeheartedly. And and this is really what the Christian life is all about. It's learning to love God more and more, and other things less and less. And we're all growing in this dimension. You know, starting to get cold, and those of you that have fireplaces are soon going to be lighting up a fire. Let me ask you something. When you have an ember in the fireplace, and you take a piece of paper and you put it next to that ember, what happens? It'll sit there for a little while and it'll smolder. But what's going to eventually happen as it gets close to that ember? It's going to burst into flame. Because the heat and the energy of that ember are transferred to that paper and suddenly it's burning. My friends, Jesus Christ is a red, hot, glowing ember of passion for the world that He made. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And as you get close to Jesus, even if your paper is wet and soggy and sits there smoking for a while, as you stay close to Jesus, His passion is going to light you on fire and give you a heart for the mission. You see, because caring for other people, being involved for the nations, people that are halfway around the world is actually unnatural. But it is divine. You and I will not do this on our own. We cannot do it. We don't have it in us. But who do we have in us? What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But who lives in me? Christ. 
It's not just that we need to adopt Christ's heart and mind. It's that for those of us who believe Christ actually lives inside of us. And we have this ember inside of us. And that's where we get the passion from. And if you don't have a passion for the lost today, you need to get closer to Christ and spend more time with Him. You can't do it, but Christ can. John Dober and David Nitchman are names that you may not readily recognize. John was a potter and David a carpenter. Ordinary occupations, extraordinary men. They are men who left the security of their lives in Copenhagen to become the first Moravian missionaries in 1732. Now, these men were not going out on a nice short-term mission trip. No, they had heard about an island in the West Indies whose ruler had declared that no missionary or preacher would ever set foot on that island because he didn't want his slaves who ran his plantations to hear about the freedom that's in Jesus Christ. And as John and David heard about that, they thought those slaves need to hear the gospel of Christ. How are they going to hear? And there was only one way for them to do it. They sold themselves into slavery. And they used the money they got from the sale of themselves to pay for passage on a ship. And they boarded a ship for that island in the West Indies. They said, our lamb has conquered Let us follow Him. That's what we're about as a church. We want to create a passion in our hearts to follow Jesus, the Lamb who has conquered. And as the ship pulled away from the docks and they said goodbye to their family and friends for what they thought was forever, they lifted a cry, May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. And that became the resonating heartbeat of the Moravian Missions Movement. These men felt that their sacrifice paled in comparison to the sacrifice of their Savior for them. They loved Jesus with everything that they were and did. And they wanted to walk in obedience, knowing that the God who called them would give them courage to fulfill the call. But where did they get such a heart for the mission? That they would literally sell themselves into slavery to fulfill it? Well, it started about five years earlier. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf began a community in Germany of people who were serious about seeking God. And he said, we need to pray. And they started a around-the-clock prayer meeting that went 24-7 for over a hundred years. And out of that group were flung hundreds and hundreds of missionaries. But here's what they said. David and John said, during that time, in that environment of drawing near to God, we grew in hunger of God, His Word, and His lost. The Count's personal life motto became ours. I have one passion. It is Jesus. Jesus only. And they knew that the secret to be able to sell themselves into slavery in order to minister to their fellow slaves was to be totally in love with their Lord. And with their eyes upon Him, they could lay their lives down and carry the cross of slavery so that others might hear and be saved. That, my friends, is a heart for mission, for the battle. And it comes from our Savior Jesus. Well, secondly, we don't only need a heart for the battle. We need a mind for the battle. Caleb understood the mission. Look again at verse 12. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. 
Caleb understood the goal of the battle. Even our politicians talk about the need for clear objectives in war and the danger of mission creep. And there are a lot of definitions of mission out there. But Kevin DeYoung has written a book and he surveyed a lot of passages. And this was his conclusion. And by the way, the book is available in the Resource Center over here if you'd like to study it more. We need to know what our mission is. We need to have a mind for the battle and a clear understanding. And this was his conclusion. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches. You see, we get sidetracked with so many good things that we miss the bullseye. There's so many good things happening out there. And you may have gotten involved because of some personal connection or you've been moved by by some presentation. and, And there's nothing bad about that. But here's the question. How are we doing with the gap? How are we doing with that one third of the world who has not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't stop doing the good you're doing here, but understand the mission is to finish the job and make sure that there's a church in every people group of the world so that that church then can be light and salt in its community and bring the grace and the transformative power, the shalom of Jesus Christ to their people. You see, Paul said, I make it my ambition in life not to feed the hungry of the world, not to free all the slaves under the Roman Empire, not to change governmental societies and structures. He said, I've made it my ambition to preach Christ. Because where where Christ is preached, the church will come into existence. And that church then can take and be the salt and light transforming its community, just like we're doing here in Indianapolis through the Brookside Initiative and many others. That is a beautiful thing. But here's what we sometimes don't understand. If all the churches in the world were salt and light in their community, if every Christian was proclaiming their faith to everybody they knew, that would be marvelous, but it would only be affecting two-thirds of the world. There would still be one-third of the world that has not yet heard the gospel of Christ. And we're not done with that job until we send somebody to start a church in that people group in every one of those 2,000 remaining people groups of the world. That is the mission, and we need a mind for the battle like Caleb had. But secondly, we must understand the method of the battle. Look at this verse, Deuteronomy 1. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Does anything strike you as a little strange in that verse? God has given you the land. Go and take possession of the land. So, which is it? Has God given it to us or do we have to go get it? And the answer is yes. See, this is the same thing we saw last week in Psalm 2. The father said to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. And I believe that Jesus did exactly that. Do you wonder what Jesus was praying about through those nights of prayer that he spent that the gospels record? I think he was praying certainly about this. He was asking the father to give him the nations as his inheritance. But what did he have to do after that? Did God just hand him the nations on a silver platter? No, Jesus had to do something to receive that inheritance. And you know what he had to do? He had to willingly be despised and rejected by men. He had to be smitten and afflicted. He had to bear in his body 
the wounds of our sins. He had to go to the cross so that by his blood he might purchase men and women for God from every tribe and tongue and people and language. You see, God gave it to him, but he had to go get it. And Caleb says the same thing here. He says, you have given me an inheritance. And yet I know that I need to go up and fight. And what was that job for him? Wow. Look at it. Chapter 15, verse 14. We'll look ahead in the story just a a minute. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. This is a verse that I can't wait to see more about when we get to heaven. There is a whole movie in this one verse. Who were these guys? Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai were the descendants of Anak. These were the giants in the land. These were the baddest guys in town. These were the meanest dogs in the junkyard. Are you with me? These were... Ollie and Fraser and Tyson all wrapped up in one. These were Silva, Couture and Liddell, if that's your language. These were the Joker, Lex Luthor and Magneto. Am I, am I getting through to anyone yet? All right. This was Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-il. And you know what Caleb said? He said, God has promised me. He's given me these for my inheritance. I'm going to go and get them. And when he went up to Hebron, what do you suppose those mean, bad junkyard dogs said? And they said, do you want our houses? Sure, come on in. You want our lands and our vineyards? Sure, help yourself. Do you want to take our wives and our children? Sure, have them. We're tired of them. Oh, maybe, no. Don't want to go there. They fought like cats and dogs, tooth and nail, and Caleb fought them. And this is all in one verse of chapter 15. God helping him, Caleb conquered because he understood that to receive his inheritance, he had to fight the battle. And just like David, as a young man, saw the giant and he ran towards him. And said, God helping me, I will bring him down. Caleb now, as an old man, saw the giant and he ran towards him. And he said, God helping me, I will bring them down. And he drove them out and conquered Hebron in the power of God. And here's the principle. That God extends the kingdom of his son through the conquests of his people. Here's how he describes it in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord... This is the father now talking again to the son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. The father has decreed it. He's going to give kingdom and dominion to Jesus. He is going to rule among his enemies like we saw in Psalm 2. But you know what the very next verse says? It describes how this is going to happen and how is that your troops will be willing on your day of battle. That's how God extends his kingdom through the willing troops of his people. My friends, I'm not trying to beat you into doing anything today. But if you are a willing servant and follower and lover of God, there is a battle there to be fought. There is a job yet to be done. You see, God's giving is often not the end of the battle. It's the beginning. God gives and we go. 
God promises and we proclaim. God fulfills, but we fight. And we do this in dependence on God. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will be with me. Or as the NIV says, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Well, you may be saying this morning, okay, but that sounds pretty heavy. Do I have to do that? That's not really me. I'm not really much into fighting and all that energy and stuff. Can I just opt out of this and, and maybe not sign on? How about let me just let some other people do that instead? Well, if you ask that question, and, and it's a legitimate one. I can, I can hear it actually coming from you. But I, I do wonder a few things about you. I wonder, first of all, if not you, then who? You say, I've got so many issues and struggles and problems in life. Well, how about the person sitting next to you right here in church? Do they not have any troubles and problems? How about the missionaries that were on the stage? Are there not issues in their families? Or I wonder this about you. How well do you really know the heart of God? If you have no interest in the nations of the world, I wonder if you know the Savior of the world very well at all. And then finally, I wonder if you know where life is really actually at. You see, Jesus said, if you try to save your life, if you hold on to the stuff, you're going to lose your life. That's not where life is. Where is life? Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you will find it. And I will give you back a hundred times as much in this life and in the age to come is his promise. You see, we're satisfied with such trifles we think life is in the stuff of this world and we don't understand that it's in the releasing the surrendering the following god wholeheartedly that we ourselves are going to lay hold of life and we're also going to be a conduit of that life to other people that's why paul could say in romans 15 i glory in christ jesus in my service for god He could finish his life saying, I'm proud in the right sense of what I have done. I have not wasted my life. And that gave him great satisfaction. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So, My friends, we need a heart for the battle. But we also need a mind for the battle that teaches us that we need to engage in order to conquer and appropriate what Jesus has already won for us. But finally... We need hands for the battle. Verse 11, look at what Caleb said. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Caleb knew how to fight. He had never been to a seminar on it, I'm sure. He had never been trained at West Point. But he knew how to fight by fighting. And so I wonder today is, do we know how to fight our battle? David said this about God. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. And my appeal to you today is if you do not know how to fight this battle, God wants to train your hands for it. He wants to teach you how to be a willing warrior in his army to take that remaining third of the world for him. And what are our weapons? Well, here's one, the very first one, the one we learned about last week, prayer. Can anyone not fight that battle? 
Yeah, so don't be thinking this is just for the missionaries. This is for all of us. It begins with prayer, as we learned from Psalm 2 last week. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 9. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Pray that he would send out laborers because the harvests are ripe for harvest, but the laborers are few. And so the simple question is, are you doing it? You may be saying, so is this the part of the sermon where you beat us up for not praying as much as we should? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because we need to hear this. This is God's fundamental strategy. And so I'm asking you, are you praying for the nations? And you may be doing it on your own. Are you doing it together corporately? We have a few ways that you can do that. We're trying to do this as a church. We have a first Friday of the month when we pray for our strategic partnerships. We have Barnabas teams that pray once a month for our missionaries. We have prayer teams for our strategic partnerships. And we need, my friends, to get together, to have two or three gather and agree on things and ask God for these nations so that He might conquer them and bring salvation to them. We have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world. Oh, we've got the money, we've got the resources, but we don't have a clue how to pray. And when you travel around the world, you're just humbled at how much people pray. In Cambodia, for instance, the World Relief staff there every morning before they get on their motorbikes and go out into the villages, they meet together for 30 or 45 minutes of worship and prayer because they know they cannot accomplish a thing unless God is with them and filling them. We have our committee meetings and our agendas and we jump right in it and we leave prayer out altogether. Or there's a man in Delhi who's a graduate of the seminary in North India that we partner with, who for two years was working in the slums of Delhi among Hindus there and seeing no response at all to the gospel. And he said, the only way we're going to succeed is if we get serious about prayer. And so he gathered his people and they had regular times of prayer and fasting where they would meet because they weren't distracted with the cartoons that have infiltrated Western society. They met and they prayed and God blessed them and God is growing that fellowship. And Pastor John just finished a 40-day period of complete fasting because he wants God to do more. He said, God, give me Delhi for the name of Jesus. And I'm going to pray about that and seek your face until that happens. Are you praying for the nations? Well, there's other things we can do as well. There's learning. We need to learn about God's work around the world. In fact, there's a resource table right out here with lots of great books. Check it out. There's wonderful missionary biographies for your kids that can begin to to teach them about the battle. Pick up some books and learn. We have gym night, a meeting once a month for those who are interested in missions to to learn together about the process and encourage one another in, in the going. And that's another thing we can do. As we heard today, vision trips. Maybe God wants you to step out of your comfort zone like some of those folks that shared their testimonies today did. Maybe God wants some of you to go longer term. Why not take your light from the lit two-thirds of the world and just move it with the skills God has given you to the dark one-third of the world? We want to have more college parkers do that. And finally, by your giving, you can also make a difference. We have scholarship programs with our partnerships. You can buy some cards today that will help a ministry in Kenya. Let me wrap this up by simply asking this question. So what is your mountain? That you say to God, give me this mountain. 
Now let me be clear, I'm not talking about a challenge in your own life. That may be a mountain, but that's something else. I'm also not talking about what you're doing here in Indianapolis. I had a couple ask me after first hour, so should I stop doing what I'm doing here? Of course not. Keep doing that. We are the church of Indianapolis. But here's my challenge to you, very plain and simple. What I'd like you to do based on Caleb's example and the Great Commission is pick something in the red part of this map. See, because that's the gap between the Great Commission and where we're at today. Pick a people group. You can't do it all, but find a bite-sized piece. Find one people group that you can make a difference for. See, do I have to go there? I said, I don't know. I don't think so. Somebody does, but maybe not you. But there are ways that you can support what is happening there if you will care for that people group. You say, well, where do I start? That's 2.5 billion people. We have missionaries and partnerships working among Japanese, the Lao, the Khmer, the Uyghur, the Hui, the Yadav, the Punjabi, the Arab, the Ovamwila, the Fulani, and the Quechuan. That's 10 unreached people groups right there that you can connect with. But don't think about 10. Find one. Find your mountain. And then begin to pour your heart into them and let Jesus pour his love into you for that people group and do whatever God sets before you to make an impact for the church among that people group. George Verber tells the story when he went to Moody Bible Institute. He was a, a smart aleck kid from New Jersey who had just been saved and there was a prayer meeting Friday night and he went to it to hopefully meet some girls and as he walked into the prayer meeting the leader stuck him in the chest and said, George, what nation are you praying for? And George didn't know what to say, so he, he muttered, Well, what's left? <laughs> the guy said, Libya. He had never heard of Libya before. So he adopted Libya, and God used him to send many missionaries to Libya and to make an impact on that country for Christ. And so my question for you today from the story of Caleb is, What country, what people group are you claiming for Christ? John Knox was a great reformer known for his faith and his prayer. And Queen Mary of Scotland was reported to have said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of England. But things in Scotland were awful. The Catholic Church was persecuting Protestants, was burning them at the stake and destroying their homes because they didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his heart was broken for his land of Scotland. And one night his friends couldn't find him. He'd gone outside. And so they went out to look for him. And they heard some groaning. And they went over to where they heard the groanings. And there they saw John Knox on his knees in prayer. And this is what he said to God. Give me Scotland or I die. My friends, ask for a passion for God, for your mountain. And he will give it to you. Will you let God so fill your heart with himself? with his love that you say, give me this people group or I die. Will you do it for them so that they might hear and be saved? Will you do it for him so that he might receive the full reward of his suffering? And will you do it by his grace, God helping you, replacing your apathy with his love and your weakness with his strength? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for men like Caleb who stand out among so many. 
We want to follow Caleb like he followed you. We want to follow Paul like he followed you. We want our lives to count. We want to have an answer for this gap in the Great Commission. And my prayer for these dear brothers and sisters today is simply this, Father, that you would show each one what people group you want them to adopt as an individual or as a family. And then that you would open up beyond their expectations ways that they can impact that people group so at the end of their life they might glory in Christ Jesus. That there will be people from that group around the throne instead of in the lake of fire worshiping Jesus for all of eternity because today they made a decision to go and to fight and to conquer in the name of Jesus. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, if you'd like to talk to somebody, there'll be some folks at the front today to explain the gospel to you. Thanks for coming. Go and fill the gap in the Great Commission.